The Old Curiosity Shop, Chapter Seventeen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens, Chapter Seventeen. Another bright day shining in through the small casement and claiming fellowship with the kindred eyes of the child awoke her. At sight of the strange room and its unaccustomed object, she started up in alarm, wondering how she had been moved from the familiar chamber in which she seemed to have fallen asleep last night, and whither she had been conveyed. But another glance around called to her mind all that had lately passed, and she sprung from her bed, hoping and trustful. It was yet early, and the old man being still asleep, she walked out into the churchyard, brushing the dew from the long grass with her feet, and often turning aside into places where it grew longer than in others, that she might not tread upon the graves. She felt a curious kind of pleasure in lingering among these houses of the dead, and read the inscriptions on the tombs of the good people—a great number of good people were buried there—passing on from one to another with increasing interest. It was a very quiet place, as such a place should be, save for the cawing of the rooks who had built their nests among the branches of some tall old trees, and were calling to one another high up in the air. First one sleek bird, hovering near his ragged house as it swung and dangled in the wind, uttered his hoarse cry, quite by chance as it would seem, and in a sober tone as though he were but talking to himself. Another answered, and he called again, but louder than before. Then another spoke, and then another, and each time the first, aggravated by contradiction, insisted on his case more strongly. Other voices, silent till now, struck in from the boughs lower down and higher up and midway, and to the right and left and from the tree-tops, and others, arriving hastily from the grey church turrets and old belfry window, joined the clamour which rose and fell and swelled and dropped again, and still went on, and all this noisy contention amidst a skimming to and fro, and lighting on fresh branches, and frequent changes of place, which satirised the old restlessness of those who lay so still beneath the moss and turf below, and the strife in which they had worn away their lives. Frequently raising her eyes to the trees whence these sounds came down, and feeling as though they made the place more quiet than perfect silence would have done, the child loitered from grave to grave, now stopping to replace with careful hands the bramble which had started from some green mound it helped to keep in shape, and now peeping through one of the low latticed windows into the church, with its worm-eaten books upon the desks, and bays of white and green mouldering from the pew-sides and leaving the naked wood to view. There were the seats where the poor old people sat, worn spare and yellow like themselves, the rugged font where children had their names, the homely altar where they knelt in afterlife, the plain black trestles that bore their weight on their last visit to the cool old shady church. Everything told of long use and quiet slow decay. The very bell-rope of the porch was frayed into a fringe, and hoary with old age. She was looking at a humble stone which told of a young man who had died at twenty-three years old fifty-five years ago when she heard a faltering step approaching, and looking round saw a feeble woman bent with the weight of years, who tottered to the foot of that same grave, and asked her to read the writing on the stone. The old woman thanked her when she had done, saying that she had had the words by heart for many a long, long year, but could not see them now. "'Were you his mother?' said the child. 
I was his wife, my dear. She was the wife of a young man of three-and-twenty. Ah, true, it was fifty-five years ago. You wonder to hear me say that, remarked the old woman, shaking her head. You're not the first. Older folk than you have wondered at the same thing before now. Yes, I was his wife. Death doesn't change us more than life, my dear. Do you come here often? asked the child. I sit here very often in the summer time, she answered. I used to come here once to cry and mourn, but that was a weary while ago, bless God. I pluck the daisies as they grow and take them home, said the old woman after a short silence. I like no flowers so well as these, and haven't for five and fifty years. It's a long time, and I'm getting very old. Then growing garrulous upon a theme which was new to one listener, though it were but a child, she told her how she had wept and moaned and prayed to die herself when this happened, and how when she first came to that place a young creature strong in love and grief, she had hoped that her heart was breaking as it seemed to be. But that time passed by, and although she continued to be sad when she came there, still she could bear to come, and so went on until it was pain no longer but a solemn pleasure and a duty she had learned to like. And now that five-and-fifty years were gone, she spoke of the dead man as if he had been her son or grandson, with a kind of pity for his youth, growing out of her own old age, and an exalting of his strength and manly beauty as compared with her own weakness and decay. And yet she spoke about him as her husband, too, and thinking of herself in connection with him as she used to be and not as she was now, talked of their meeting in another world, as if he were dead but yesterday, and she, separated from her former self, were thinking of the happiness of that comely girl who seemed to have died with him. The child left her gathering the flowers that grew upon the grave, and thoughtfully retraced her steps. The old man was by this time up and dressed. Mr. Codlin, still doomed to contemplate the harsh realities of existence, was packing among his linen the candle-ends which had been saved from the previous night's performance, while his companion received the compliments of all the loungers in the stable-yard, who, unable to separate him from the master-mind of Punch, set him down as next in importance to that merry outlaw, and loved him scarcely less. When he had sufficiently acknowledged his popularity, he came in to breakfast, at which meal they all sat down together. "'And where are you going to-day?' said the little man, addressing himself to Nell. "'Indeed, I hardly know. We have not determined yet,' replied the child. "'We're going on to the races,' said the little man. "'If that's your way, and you like to have us for company, let us travel together. If you prefer going alone, only say the word, and you'll find that we shan't trouble you.' "'We'll go with you,' said the old man. "'Nell, with them, with them.' The child considered for a moment, and reflecting that she must shortly beg, and could scarcely hope to do so at a better place than where crowds of rich ladies and gentlemen were assembled together for purposes of enjoyment and festivity, determined to accompany these men so far. She therefore thanked the little man for his offer, and said, glancing timidly towards his friend, that if there was no objection to their accompanying them as far as the race-town— "'Objection,' said the little man. "'Now be gracious for once, Tommy, and say that you'd rather they went with us. I know you would. Be gracious, Tommy.' "'Trotters,' said Mr. Codlin, who talked very slowly and ate very greedily, as is not uncommon with philosophers and misanthropes, 
"'You're too free.' "'Why, what harm can it do?' urged the other. "'No harm at all in this particular case, perhaps,' replied Mr. Codlin. "'But the principle's a dangerous one, and you're too free, I tell you.' "'Well, are they to go with us or not?' "'Yes, they are,' said Mr. Codlin. "'But you might have made a favour of it, mightn't you?' The real name of the little man was Harris, but it had gradually merged into the less euphonious one of Trotters, which, with the prefatory adjective short, had been conferred upon him by reason of the small size of his legs. Short Trotters, however, being a compound name, inconvenient of use in friendly dialogue, the gentleman on whom it had been bestowed was known among his intimates either as Short or Trotters and was seldom accosted at full length as short trotters except in formal conversations and on occasions of ceremony short then or trotters as the reader pleases returned unto the remonstrance of his friend mr thomas codlin a jocose answer calculated to turn aside his discontent and applying himself with great relish to the cold boiled beef the tea and bread and butter strongly impressed upon his companions that they should do the like Mr. Codlin indeed required no such persuasion, as he had already eaten as much as he could possibly carry, and was now moistening his clay with strong ale, whereof he took deep draughts with a silent relish, and invited nobody to partake, thus again strongly indicating his misanthropical turn of mind. Breakfast being at length over, Mr. Codlin called the bill, and charging the ale to the company generally, a practice also savouring of misanthropy, divided the sum total into two fair and equal parts, assigning one moiety to himself and friend, and the other to Nelly and her grandfather. These being duly discharged, and all things ready for their departure, they took farewell of the landlord and landlady, and resumed their journey and here mr codlin's false position in society and the effect it wrought upon his wounded spirit were strongly illustrated for whereas he had been last night accosted by mr punch as master and had by inference left the audience to understand that he maintained that individual for his own luxurious entertainment and delight here he was, now, painfully walking beneath the burden of that same Punch's temple, and bearing it bodily upon his shoulders on a sultry day and along a dusty road. In place of enlivening his patron with a constant fire of wit, or the cheerful ratter of his quarter-staff on the heads of his relations and acquaintance, here was that beaming Punch, utterly devoid of spine, all slack and drooping in a dark box, with his legs doubled up round his neck and not one of his social qualities remaining. Mr. Codlin trudged heavily on, exchanging a word or two at intervals with Short, and stopping to rest and growl occasionally. Short led the way with the flat box, the private luggage, which was not extensive, tied up in a bundle, and a brazen trumpet slung from his shoulder-blade. Nell and her grandfather walked next to him on either hand, and Thomas Codlin brought up the rear. When they came to any town or village, or even to a detached house of good appearance, Short blew a blast upon the brazen trumpet, and carolled a fragment of a song in that hilarious tone common to punches and their consorts. If people hurried to the windows, Mr. Codlin pitched the temple, and hastily unfurling the drapery and concealing Short therewith, flourished hysterically on the pipes and performed an air. Then the entertainment began as soon as might be.
mr codlin having the responsibility of deciding on its length and of protracting or expedating the time for the hero's final triumph over the enemy of mankind according as he judged that the after-crop of halfpence would be plentiful or scant when it had been gathered into the last farthing he resumed his load and on they went again sometimes they played out the toll across a bridge or ferry and once exhibited by a particular desire at a turnpike where the collector being drunk in his solitude paid down a shilling to have it to himself there was one small place of a rich promise in which their hopes were blighted for a favourite character in the play having gold lace upon his coat and being a meddling wooden-headed fellow was held to be a libel on the beadle for which reason the authorities enforced a quick retreat but they were generally well received and seldom left a town without a troop of ragged children shouting at their heels they made a long day's journey despite these interruptions and were yet upon the road when the moon was shining in the sky short beguiled the time with songs and jests and made the best of everything that happened mr codlin on the other hand cursed his fate and all the hollow things of earth but punch especially and limped along with the theatre on his back a prey to the bitterest chagrin they had stopped to rest beneath a finger-post where four roads met and mr codlin in his deep misanthropy had let down the drapery and seated himself on the bottom of the show invisible to mortal eyes and disdainful of the company of his fellow-creatures when two monstrous shadows were seen stalking towards them from a turning in the road by which they had come the child was at first quite terrified by the sight of these gaunt giants for such they looked as they advanced with lofty strides beneath the shadow of the trees but short telling her there was nothing to fear blew a blast upon the trumpet which was answered by a cheerful shout it's grinder's lot ain't it cried mr short in a loud key yes replied a couple of shrill voices come on then said short let's have a look at you i thought it was you thus invited grinder's lot approached with redoubled speed and soon came up with the little party mr grinder's company familiarly termed a lot consisted of a young gentleman and young lady on stilts and mr grinder himself who used his natural legs for pedestrian purposes and carried at his back a drum the public costume of the young people was of the highland kind but the night being damp and cold the young gentleman wore over his kilt a man's pea-jacket reaching to his ankles and a glazed hat the young lady too was muffled in an old cloth prelice and had a handkerchief tied about her head their scotch bonnets ornamented with plumes of jet-black feathers mr grinder carried on his instrument boon for the races i see said mr grinder coming up out of breath so are we how are you short with that they shook hands in a very friendly manner the young people being too high up for the ordinary salutations saluted short after their own fashions the young gentleman twisted up his right stilt and patted him on the shoulder and the young lady rattled her tambourine practice said short pointing to the stilts no returned grinder it comes either to walkin in em or carryin of em and they like walkin in em best it's wery pleasant for the prospects which road you taken we go the nighest why the fact is said short that we are going the longest way because then we could stop for the night a mile and a half on but three or four mile gain to-night is so many saved to-morrow and if you keep on i think our best way is to do the same where's your partner inquired grinder 
"'Here he is!' cried Mr. Thomas Codlin, presenting his head and face in the proscenium of the stage, and exhibiting an expression of countenance not often seen there. "'And he'll see his partner boiled alive before he'll go on to-night. That's what he says.' "'Well, don't say such things as them in a spear which is devoted to something pleasanter,' urged Short. "'Respect associations, Tommy, even if you do cut up rough.' "'Rough or smooth,' said Mr. Codlin, beating his hand on the little footboard, where Punch, when suddenly struck with the symmetry of his legs and their capacity for silk stockings, is accustomed to exhibit them to popular admiration. "'Rough or smooth, I won't go further than the mile and a half to-night. I put up at the Jolly Sandboys, and nowhere else. If you like to come there, come there. If you like to go on by yourself, go on by yourself, and do without me if you can.' So saying, Mr. Codlin disappeared from the scene, and immediately presented himself outside the theatre, took it on his shoulders at a jerk, and made off with most remarkable agility. Any further controversy being now out of the question, Short was fain to part with Mr. Grinder and his pupils, and to follow his morose companion. After lingering at the finger-post for a few minutes to see the stilts frisking away in the moonlight, and the bearer of the drum toiling slowly after them, he blew a few notes upon the trumpet as a parting salute, and hastened with all speed to follow Mr. Codlin. With this view he gave his unoccupied hand to Nell, and bidding her be of good cheer, as they would soon be at the end of their journey for that night, and stimulating the old man with a similar assurance, led them at a pretty swift pace towards their destination, which he was the less unwilling to make for, as the moon was now overcast, and the clouds were threatening rain. End of chapter 17